Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Poxon and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 33, we step into the world of Denis Villeneuve's 2016 sci-fi hit, Arrival, starring the wonderful Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, with a wonderfully haunting yet human score by the late and great Johan Johansson. Combining the best elements of analogue synth and recording techniques, classical minimalism and the use of human voices, Johansson's style is no more present than with this wonderful score and I can't wait to pick the brains of my nerdy friends. And speaking of nerdy friends, joining me over time and space is composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor of film music and orchestral projects all around the world and he's a looping drone note connoisseur. I'm sure that joke will make sense as the talk goes on. It's Nicholas Buck. How are you doing, Nick? It's great to be here, guys. Look, I'm very excited for this score. Um, Johan Johansson is really a tragic loss in the film music world. And his voice, however, was exceptionally unique. And he had a short career in this film music world, but a lasting one. And I think Arrival is probably his most most successful film. Um, and I think it's a great one for us to, to unpack his, his style. Indeed. And third in our quartet is a critic, a university lecturer, a writer, ABC radio host of the weekly Screen Sound Show, and the only degree-qualified heptapod wrangler this side of the Yarra, it's Dr. Dan Golding. How do you do, Dan? I do well, thank you. <laughs> um, I, yeah, look, I, I agree. I think this is such a wonderful film. Uh, as I think I've said before, it's um, particularly close to my heart because a PhD, a humanities PhD, saves the day, uh, and <laughs> it, it's such a wonderful score as well. I, I think it's 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 a very unique sound um, that fits the genre beautifully, but is so immediately identifiable um, as as just this film. So I can't wait to unpick it. And rounding out our circle, eh, eh. Okay. Uh, is a composer, a performer, and analog synth expert. Also, Art of the Score's regular contributor and all round awesome lady. And her claim to fame get this, we were told this before we pressed record. Claim to fame, Dan, is that she has sold a miniature felt synthesizer to the great Hans Zimmer, no less. Do you believe it? We actually called Hans and he was not available for comment. <laughs> Very convenient. It's Saya Vogel, everybody. Saya, how are you doing? Good. I'm I'm so honored to be classed as one of your nerdy friends. Um I know. <laughs> I mean you're the cool friend though. That's the problem. I I'm so excited about this uh this podcast. My second Villeneuve out of the score, we just realized before we pressed record. I um, know when it's Villeneuve we call Saya. That's my <laughs> that's my policy. And I um I'm a big fan and I'm a big fan of this film. I'm a big fan of the soundtrack and I, I also can't wait to get nerdy with you guys. Speaking of big fans, I've gotta say that Arrival is probably one of my more favorite sci-fi films of oh, at least at least the last decade. I I'm I almost wanna say this century. 
but I feel like I'll be missing something super obvious. <laughs> um, it certainly was a super surprising um, sci-fi. I had heard nothing about it before going into the cinema. And I, yeah, was blown away in sort of both its simplicity and, and the fact that it sort of had such a unique take on, on the genre and, and the idea of aliens coming. But more importantly such a massive amount of the film's uh, tone and information that it's purveying comes through its wonderful score. So, Dan, I thought we'd <laughs> hand over to you, as we always do, and um, see if you can tell us a little bit about both Arrival and uh, perhaps Johan Johansson. Yeah, so it's uh, the film Arrival is um, uh, based on a short story uh, from 1998 uh, by Ted Chang um, called Story of Your Life. I don't know if, if has anybody here read that, that story? I have not. No? Okay, yeah. I only ask because I've spoken to a few people who have re um, read it. I, I haven't. I think it's quite popular outside of the film anyway. So it's, you know, I think it's um, a really interesting film. It was, uh, I think... The first, I was quite late to Villeneuve's uh, films. Um, I think I went back and saw Prisoners and Sicario and a few others after being totally blown away by Arrival. Um, and Villeneuve, I think, you know, really now has almost become known as a sci-fi director because, of course, Arrival led to Blade Runner 2049, which uh, we've uh, covered previously. And he's uh, finished shooting, but it's not yet out uh, June. Um, the new adaptation of a what a poison chalice that will potentially be. Ah, absolutely. We'll see whether he can do better than Alan Smithy, the director of the previous adaptation. But I was actually surprised looking back at this because the earliest film of Villeneuve's that I knew was a film called Polytechnic, which is um based on the real life um, tragedy, a, a horrible um, attack, a shooting at um, the Polytechnic in um, Canada. And that was in 2009, but he's actually made feature films dating back to 1998. So it was really, I think, this decade that Villeneuve sort of uh, broke through, at least in the international consciousness with, as I said before, films like Prisoners, Enemy, Sicario, uh, Arrival, and of course, Blade Runner. Um, I should say as well, before I mention Johan Johansson, that I think the other real hero of this film is the cinematographer, um, Bradford Young, because the film just looks so incredible <laughs> from start to finish. And just because we like to, um, you know, we can't go too far without mentioning Star Wars, but Bradford Young also did the cinematography for Solo. So, you know, <laughs> just to, to keep up the art of the score tradition. Um, but Johan Johansson, of course, is the composer that we're here to talk about. And he uh, had well, quite a career in music for some time, but was involved in writing the soundtracks for some uh, feature films in his home country of Iceland uh, in the uh, 2000s. But I think probably really still broke through in international consciousness, I suppose, with his work, his collaborations with Villeneuve. He uh, did the score for Prisoners, but then later was uh, nominated for The Theory of Everything, um, the Stephen Hawking biopic, which is a lovely score and really very different to um, a lot of the music we'll be talking about today, but uh, did Sicario and Arrival, of course, uh, and then they parted ways as we've uh, spoken about on our previous podcast with um, Blade Runner 2049. He also, weirdly enough, had a score that he said they mutually agreed uh, should not be used um, for the Darren Aronofsky film Mother 
from 2017. Is anybody have either? Any? I've heard that story. That yeah, he wrote a score, and then they're like, actually, the film works better without it. <laughs> but, so, no, no, has anybody seen Mother? Exclamation! I haven't point? seen no. it though. No, it is. Um, whoa, it's a film. It is. I, I think still to this day, it's the only film that I don't know if I want to rate five stars or no stars. <laughs> I, I think it's probably both. One of those ones. Yeah. It's, uh, it is, um, <laughs> I'd st- I still have trouble articulating how I feel about it. It's, it's full on. So, I can understand why they decided to uh, take the music out. <laughs> but um, anyway, Johansson did, you know, some fantastic work and, uh, you know, collaborated with, um, uh, well, someone who we'll talk probably a little bit about today as well, Hilda Gunnar And they worked together on a few of his late scores, Mary Magdalene and, and um, Mandy, I think as well. And she, that, she's also a collaborator on Arrival um, before Johansson as mentioned sadly died in 2018 but he still has a tiny little bit of work that's kind of filtering out uh, his only directed film last and first men which is extremely rare to have a composer director film uh is is sort of making the rounds of film festivals at the moment uh, and in fact we've all seen it because it came to MIF. Yeah, it came to the Melbourne International Film Festival and part of the reason why we have uh, chosen this score is because we were asked to give a talk on Johansson's music and we mostly concentrated on Arrival and Last and First Men as uh, sort of two examples of one a more mainstream sci-fi hit and one a sort of more art house sci-fi um, multimedia offering. And as Dan said, the the last film for him to um, not only compose, but he directed as well. But yeah, as, as you say, it's sort of still bits of his work coming out, which is both exciting and sort of melancholy at the same time, knowing that we're not going to hear anymore. Um Certainly a composer who had a huge impact, I'd say, on um, the melding of both old-style, you know, classical uh, orchestral writing and, and, and definitely string writing, and then melding that with sort of the more technical world um, that, you know, people like Hans Zimmer and, and others are so well known for. And, and he sits beautifully in between those two worlds and and probably, for my money, is some of the most successful melding of those two genres. So, um, and this is a great film for sort of showing off how he brings a lot of those electronic and organic elements together and sort of turns them into something totally different. So an exciting one to look at, Dan. Um, yeah. Now, of course, we have Sayer here and I can't say the word electronic without, <laughs> uh, without getting Sayer on the line. So it's always exciting to have you here, Sayer. Um, and uh, we've got a few little, uh, few little segments, as we always do with Sayer coming up. But before we get to that, let's move on over to you, Nick. And, and let's, let's, we're doing a slightly different format um, on this particular episode, aren't we? We are. I mean, look, usually on Out of the Score, we, we delve into themes and we break them down and how they work and apply to characters and whatnot. I mean, one of the most unique things about this film score is that it's pretty much themeless. People don't leave the cinema humming the arrival theme. And I mean, I can't think of a film we've done, maybe Blade Runner comes a little close, where there's so much space in this film and room for, I guess, contemplating one's own feelings and one's own thoughts about the film. And I think it's really a conscious decision by Johansson and the director to go that route. You know, there are some extremely powerful scenes in this film that play without music. And, you know, when we think about the key theme of this film is 
uncovering and un- unpacking or really deciphering language. Johansson really, I guess, has taken that same approach with the music. And throughout the course of the film, we are kind of deciphering his music and he's throwing us jumbled, confused sentences that make no sense at the beginning and slowly over time kind of keep going around in circles and it really mirrors what the protagonists of the film are, are feeling and are going through in unraveling the the hook or, or the theme of this particular film. And so I thought what we do today is go through chronologically and just see how the film score kind of transforms itself throughout throughout the course of the of the picture. And the very first score cue we get is a very simple one, and to me it feels like a really long sigh or an exhale. It's just a very simple string cue. But it really says from the get-go that you will have time to take in this film. You will have time to consider this music. And just the the length of time that every chord lingers on is really indicative of what Johansson is trying to say with this film. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but you can hear that there's a it's like a seriousness to it, and at the same time, a heavy kind of weight of sort of it feels like there's this burden upon our main character. And this is Amy Adams, where she's basically looking at the TV and seeing the news reports of the, all these alien ships that have arrived around around the planet. So look, you know, it's a simple cue, but it's 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 making a like I said, it really feels like a. <sighs> <sighs> like a just a long breath in and breath out and like wow this is this is pretty weird <laughs> i i think you know it 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 shows such an amount of confidence to write a cue like that to begin a film because i think you know a lot of the um composers who've been inspired by johansson that follow i, I hear some work like especially in tv shows and stuff like that that i think oh yeah this person really likes johan johansson and that that's cool because they'll use like a, a synth patch or something like that and they'll have a long sound that underscores the drama and evolves and changes but this is just strings and it's just a chord and it's just getting the most amount of emotion and human connection out of the least amount of musical information possible i suppose yeah yeah it's probably the most straightforward cue in in terms of from here on in everything kind of uh, doesn't sound as kind of wholesome in an organic way it sounds a bit more processed as we'll soon learn and maybe that's because you know this is just a really establishing moment of personal emotion and we haven't really dealt with the aliens yet that's that's to come so it is a there's a yeah there's a confident simplicity about it i guess is is what you're sort of saying but really the next cue is if there was going to be 
a main theme from a rival or a main identifying sound, it could be this. And this is a shot where they're, they're in a helicopter flying out towards that big field in Montana and they first see this this big alien ship and uh, have a listen to some of the, the internal sound effects. It's pretty, pretty haunting. This is really the the heart and soul of of a lot of Johansson's um, style. I guess almost all in one one cue. You've got a um, a low drone note, and um, we're going to talk to Sayer in a minute about how that one is produced. Um, you've also got uh, some very processed. What could be, and maybe we, I'm not sure if we've all agreed on this, but I, I suspect it's actually human voice that's been recorded on the wow, wow, etc. Um, and then highly processed. I really could be wrong on that. Yeah, lots of sort of like little um, analog sort of sound effecty sort of things. That melding of analog, you know, uh, synthesizer um, and recording techniques along with sort of organic recordings and and so on and sort of all coming together to ultimately bring you both something that feels uh, not digital. I don't think anyone would say that sounds like computer generated, but it both feels otherworldly and human all at the same time. And of course, this is the point when we are meeting aliens. Um, we don't know what they look like at this point. And it's a it's a film about language. And here's the first, you know, I guess sounds that we hear. And um, I know Johansson has said throughout this score that he's been very, very particular in how he has used voice and in anything that sounds like voice in that it is not even necessarily being able to identify you know the uh, the sex of the singer so it's still that idea of voice but unknowable which once again is the idea of this you know the the central idea of this film so yeah it's all sort of just melding together into this one and i i really like this cue i i think it gives such a creepy opening but i can't tell why it's creepy um, do, do you ever feel, Nick, why this sort of might be creeping us out, but not really sort of, you know, horror music? I mean, look, I know when I first saw this film, I actually thought that wow sound effect was like coming from the ship. And to me, it feels like a giant sea lion or a <laughs> whale kind of, you know, it's like the mother figure kind of going wow wow So, yeah, you talk about that human quality. It really is there. It almost feels like an electronic drone combined with this this strange creature calling out for help. And so it doesn't feel dangerous as, you know, compared to like, say, you know, a Sigourney Weaver alien film. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's sort of inquisitive at the same time. Yeah. But it, 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 yeah, it feels, it feels unknowable in a way that is neither threatening nor reassuring. 
I think, you know, like I had the same reaction, Nick. I, I thought, is this the sound that's coming from the ships uh, it, within the world? Like, is Amy Adams hearing the sounds as well? And I think, you know, in that sense, uh, this scene, you know, and that kind of thought process always makes me think of, of Close Encounters uh, in the sense that that's yeah. another <laughs> film about aliens arriving and, and communicating through music. Um, but, you know, um, they're... Uh, is uh, a lot, uh, a lot happier, uh, and a lot more immediately reassuring than. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, and we've got the John Williams plug in. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. there we go. We did it. I we didn't mention him by name. <laughs> it was implied, Dan. That's all okay. we need to do now. All right. Um, John Williams' uh, reputation yeah. is safe for another another yeah. episode. <laughs> uh, the the other thing I wanted to mention with this um, is that Johansson made a big point of making sure that before Denis Villeneuve shot this film, so he received a script and an offer of work, he read the script, thought it sounded great, immediately, in inverted commas, uh, went into the studio and started putting together ideas and composing because he wanted his score to be in the director's and editor's minds before they had even started shooting. So that the idea of a temp score was just not a thing. Um, you already had your score there straight away. And even just to sort of give the vibe to to the, I don't know, the cinematographer, to the actors. Um, and so it was this arrival cue that he, he offered up to uh, Villeneuve uh, first to sort of say, here's the sort of idea that I'm thinking. And, and I suspect that collaboration and, and even a director allowing that sort of process to happen is probably part of the reason why so much of this movie allows the score to breathe. There are lots of scenes where there aren't talking um, and it allows these, this sort of really moody music to come through. And, and I think that's partly what makes this so unique. We're, we're so used to sci-fi films being fast edits and, um, you know, really bombastic uh, music. But this really just lets you take everything in and, and draw your own conclusions. So before we move on to another track, Nick, let's actually um, let's get get Saya on the on the line. Now she's been here the whole time. Um, <laughs> and uh, Saya, maybe you can walk us through this this first one and sort of what are the elements that that we're we're listening to. Yeah, so I actually heard him say that, as you said, he immediately went into the studio and started producing this certain kind of sound, which is actually made specifically using tape loops. As you said before too, Andrew, I think he made a very conscious decision to to make the sounds organically rather than using synthesizers because I think these kinds of sounds you can make something quite similar in 10 minutes, but I think what he did was he collected organic acoustic instruments. You know, he, he collected a whole bunch of sounds and then made his own library, basically. And then he would go in and use those sounds and manipulate them afterwards. And a lot of them actually manipulated in an analog way using tape machines. So I thought I would get a little bit nerdy and talk about tape you. looping. <laughs> yep. I'm excited. Seems so unlike our show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, we've well, invited I, the wrong guest yeah. on. You know, I can't, I don't have much in terms of analog synths to talk about in this one, but I do have a lot of uh, tape looping content. So um, yep, I thought I would, I My would body give you is a, ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'd give you a little bit of a, um, just an overview of what 
tape looping actually means. So again, this is something that he used throughout this entire score. And it's a really interesting way of doing things when you could be using, you know, as as computer program really. So basically looping originated in, you know, maybe the 1950s uh, pretty early on. And it's called looping because back then it was actually two ends of a section of analog tape that would be spliced together to form a literal closed loop. So keeping in mind that everyone back then, and including Johansson now, was using reel-to-reel tape machines. So they weren't just using, you know, like a boom box. So people who often get mentioned in the same breath as tape looping are people like Steve Reich, who was one of the first artists to be associated with ambient music and minimalism. And Reich did a lot of experiments with two tape machines. So it's a little bit different to what Johansson was doing. So he was playing two identical loops and then that the loops would sort of go in and out of time with each other and they would go in and out of phase so it would would make these kind of beautiful recursive harmonies and another person that gets mentioned a lot in in line in the same breath as tape machines is um Robert Fripp and his Frippertronics technique and this is actually the one that Johan Johansson used a lot of um it's also called sound on sound looping Um, And the way that that works is basically a tape machine has three tape heads. So most tape machines would have three tape heads. One of them's an erase head, one of them's a write head, and one of them's a read head. Uh, So when the tape loops around those three heads, you would write something. So you would record a sound. It would then travel past the read head Uh, which is getting played and then goes around the erase head, which would then erase the sound so you could go back and record something again. And you would only hear that signal once. So if you disable the erase head, so you would be physically putting the tape, looping it past the erase head, basically that the signal will then travel from read to write to read to write, which means that every loop of the tape you can record an additional sound and it would pass over the top of that original phrase. So you're basically recording sound upon sound upon sound. Sayer, um, when you say tape head, what does that mean? <laughs> well, that's it's just a little... I think it's a magnet as far as oh. I know. It's like a... Oh, you, know, okay. you know on your um, old boombox... You would, um, yeah. it's the it's the bit that actually touches the tape at the bottom of the cassette. Like if you're putting the cassette in with the t- top up. Like round so cylinders. Yeah, they're like little round cylinders. Right. That's right. Yeah. Huh. Um, so the cool thing about having the existing part still playing while you record over it is that sometimes you can hear these beautiful ghostly remains of the previous loop. Um, which is what Johansson really cashes in on. Um, And, you know, so you can hear the ghost of the previous loop and the loop before that and the loop before that. So it's it's kind of creating this beautiful sort of reverb sound. And the other thing you can do with tape, which is really cool, is you can slow the tape heads down. So you can slow the whole machine down, play it at a lower speed, um, and that that is something that Johansson did a lot of as well in this score. So he's slowing it down. Sometimes I think he's even slowing it down, recording things then at a normal speed and then slowing that down. So it's sort of like two octaves down at the same time. So, yeah, you, he's sort of creating these beautiful harmonics and subsonic rumbles and that, that comes across in a lot of these songs on the on the score. And I read in this particular arrival cue that that sort of drone note is actually a, a grand piano 
that has been recorded and the attack on the grand piano has been removed and you just have the the sound that happens after that being looped around and around so it never sort of gives it away that it's a, a piano but you get these sort of ghostly uh piano sort of sub harmonics the vibrations going of the strings yeah, yeah. feel yeah. them going wild. yeah it's beautiful it's it's just the resonance of the piano not the attack so in this particular song that we're talking about arrival um he's taken the attack off He's pitched everything down, you know, maybe two or three octaves. I think then he's he's probably put like a bit more sub bass on one of the piano tracks. I think I read that he actually records three pianos doing the same note, taking the attack off all of them. So it's quite a, you know, it's even more resonance than just the one piano track. And then another thing that I think he's doing, you know, all of this stuff is is me, you know, trying to recreate it and, and trying to figure out what, what he did. But I think he, I know that he recorded a lot of strings and um, he would reverse the strings. So you get this really beautiful sort of build up and swell to the strings. And, you know, and then the, the piano loop. So, you know, that, that tape loop that has the just the resonance of the piano that's carrying over to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. So it's almost like a you know, an endless, an endless loop of this like beautiful low rumble um, that's down an octave. I would say the reverse effect as just like a general effect is going to be the most underrated, simplest way to take any natural sound mm. and just make it still feel natural, but like, what the hell is that? Yeah. <laughs> it just, you know, like I, I'm not going to mention the, the, I think it was another podcast where they used to play like excerpts of film scores backwards and people be like on the edge of their seat going, oh my God, I, I know that, but it's so <laughs> alien. And I think that's such a, a great technique. I mean, for any composer out there just wants to try mashing up and flipping their music on its head, try the reverse effect because it is a very powerful tool. Yeah, it's um, magic. In, in the composing process. Yeah, definitely. Especially if the other part of the score is just a, a low drone, you can kind of do anything over it. But I mean, Andrew said before he thought that that seal sound that, or the the whale or whatever you said earlier. <laughs> um, sea lion. The sea, sea lion. lion. Yeah, very specific. The sea lion. Um, yeah, from uh, the North Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> you, you thought that was maybe a voice that was being manipulated. I actually think it might be a flute, but no one a will flute. ever know. Yeah, I think it's a, I think wow. it's a, like a modulated flute, but who knows? Um, so what, so what I tried to do, like, I mean, it's really difficult to um, to know exactly what he did because I think he's a, he was quite secretive about it. But what I tried to do is I tried to recreate this track. Just, you know, obviously I don't have a reel-to-reel tape machine at home, but uh, what I did was I recorded some piano. I took the attack off. I pitched it down. I played a little bit of backward strings. And I did try to do that lead with a flute that was also... Um, you know, pitch down, modulated a little bit so it sounds a little bit less human. So yeah, if you if you wouldn't mind playing my um, very <laughs> inexperienced recreation, I'm 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 actually wondering, Saya. Let's play your raw version first, okay? Um, and and let's hear all those elements that you just spoke about um, to see where you started. And um, yeah, let's have, let's have a listen.
Now, Saya, you're fired because that sounds nothing like a <laughs> I was rival. Spot on. I, I can see the, you know, the Montana uh, aliens and the heptapods. That's, uh, I, it's, I don't know. I, I love I this big build-up and then that's what we play. No, I, I am um, I am, I am teasing Saya. This actually shows you just how amazing yeah. this sort of technique is where you can take some of these sorts of raw sounds and then turn them into something which um, I'm going to play it for you now. Saya has done all of the things that she's just spoken about and it is uncanny how close she gets to the original. Check it out. Wonderful. <laughs> See, it's amazing, isn't it, Dan? It's pretty cool. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I wish that I had had all the tools to do it, but it's pretty amazing because, I mean, I think compared to his version, that sounds, you know, quite amateur. But, you know, I think I read that he he went in and, and he sent Villeneuve a, a tiny snippet of that. Like I've just, you know, I've just done this tape machine experiment and Villeneuve was like, yep, just send me five minutes of that. And yep. so that was a real like creation of, okay, I think I'm on the right track and I'm, I'm going to keep using tape. And um, I'm going to shoot the film with that in my earbuds yes, the entire time. It's so yeah. clever. Yeah. It's a nice one. Um, I also like say that, that you and I, um, it, it's almost Schrodinger's out of the score this episode where uh, you and I at this point in time can both be right and wrong about whether it's flute or human voice. <laughs> if you know, if you know if, if it's flute or human voice or something else, um, uh, jump onto the, the socials and, um, well, and uh, tell us who was right and who was wrong. Andrew, you, you, you say that it's Schrodinger's, but I mean, w- one of you has produced uh, a mocked up version using flute and one of you hasn't uh, okay, produced okay, anything. Okay. So, wow. you know. I mean, maybe it's Mellotron. Maybe they, maybe he used a Mellotron. Yeah. Yeah. I did I did think your your flute um sample sounded a bit Mellotron-ish. Yeah. Well, I, mm. unfortunately I was working inside the box. Mm. But um you know, beggars can't be choosers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the reason why I wanted to point out voice is because um, one of his key collaborators on this score was uh, Robert Ike Albury Lowe, who's the uh, very well-known in certain circles, at least, um, experimental vocalist. And he specializes in doing all sorts of very nasal and up in the sort of the, the male falsetto range, like... Mm-hmm all that sort of stuff i'm terrible obviously um and uh yeah so he he records those those weird already weird you know sort of vocal stylings and then sort of puts them through the you know the the ringer as well so i wondered whether that's where where it was coming from but who knows who knows um nick shall we move on yeah look i wanted to go into uh, the first encounter when they basically enter the ship and we get that cool scene where the you know where the gravity kind of shifts they kind of jump up into the air and then all of a sudden they kind of fall sidewards. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, but the music really sounds like it's reflecting this change of gravity. But I think my favorite moment is when we get that shot of the white interior of, of the alien spacecraft. And if you think that sort of, you know, human voice Mellotron flute thing was a was a sea line, <laughs> this is where we get the big the big mama. This is like the uh, 
the queen, the massive mu- yeah, the queen, the queen has whale. turned up. Yeah, yeah. it's um, it's quite an explosive blast. You know what I like about this one, Nick, is um, you're talking about the the gravity shifting. Um, normally, whenever I've heard composers sort of do that, they always go down. They always go... THX. Yeah, well, <laughs> THX sound, exactly. Um, this has it going upwards. I wonder whether that makes it feel more dizzy. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like it's going towards yeah. the head. It, it It's a very different feeling than having everything sort of falling downwards even though I guess gravity is pulling them down. But the result of this, and this once again, I think very smart choices, uh, the result of this is not that gravity is pulling them down. The result is that they're disorientated. And so you get this idea of music that's that's pulling upwards and, like I said, more of a dizzy sort of head feel, um, followed by, yes, that big sort of blast. But then we have the the little pizzicato, the plucked strings, going blum, blum, boom. Mm. And it feels like these two forces um, in, in the pod. You've got the, the sneaking along, creeping, well, not sneaking, they're, they're just very hesitant. The humans walking along the corridor, which, which ultimately does feel like those, those bomb, 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 pizzicato strings. And then juxtaposed with that big foreboding, you know, sort of over the top. And it, it just, it sets the scene so beautifully. Another scene where there's no talking and... Mm. All of the work is really, at the end of the day, being done by the score on this one. I got to say, I've been racking my brains um, since I went back and listened to this score about what this particular cue reminds me of. And finally, in this moment, (laughs) just in time, I remembered. It reminds me of um, Mika Levi's incredible score for Under the Skin, uh, which is another science fiction sort of art housey sci-fi uh, from around the same period. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's got Scarlett Johansson in it, but it's woof, it is an incredible score as well and makes, you know, I would I would very much put Levi in the same same class of composer as Johansson, I think. Um really really great stuff which if you haven't heard that definitely track it down. It kind of reminds me a tiny bit of the Upside Down from Stranger Things too. <laughs> another another one sure. that we've talked about together. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Just that really creepy, you know, that something terrible is about to happen, even though it, you know, may or may not be happening in this film, but you definitely feel that sort of dread. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, this film, you know, we talked earlier about that it deals with language and deciphering language. 
when they finally go in and they see the two heptapods, uh, what do they call them, Abbott and Costello? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so cute. Um, they kind of spray, I guess, these alien symbols on the glass. Well, that's sort of you know how it appears. And we get this cue that all of a sudden introduces a bit of confusion into the music. And I say confusion because it really sounds like the strings here are sort of a bit dizzy and sort of playing on top of one another in these little loopy patterns like they're kind of not quite sure where the downbeat is or they've lost track of the conductor or something. <laughs> and you really get that that sense of yeah, spirally confusion. You know, interestingly, the, that interval between the sort of the, the lower pitches and the upper pitches um, forms a tritone. I, I feel, you know, they're, they're the two notes that are farthest away from each other on the scale. So if you're going to start anywhere musically, which is sort of as far as away you can get from each other, it's sort of the tritone. And then they can kind of work their way inwards and form some kind of harmony. But we get that sense of the human voice again. A bit more recognisable as a human here. Um, and I believe this is the, the theatre of voices, which is that, well, I think it used to be an um, American ensemble, but it's since gone international. And I think certainly by the time of this film, it's an international cast from Denmark and, and all sorts of places around Europe and, and the States. But yeah, they're experimental vocal ensemble. And once again, really expert at, at singing without there being sort of those hint of languages and um, very sort of, it's human, but not human all at the same time. Mm. I also, I mean, this is, um, this cue is uh, called Sapphire Wharf, uh, which is taken from the plot of the film. Um, and I'm just always reminded of this because it's so beautiful. Again, academic linguistic theory going into the, the film, but it was the idea which is talked about in the film that, uh, the language that you speak literally shapes the way that you think. Um, so I think, you know, some, there was a lot of discussion in like the mid 20th century. I think it was that like, for example, some languages um, don't have cardinal directions like North, West, East, South, etc. They only have egocentric directions. So behind me, in front of you, etc. cetera. Um, and that that literally changed the way that people thought about, the world around them, for example, the, the, those changes in words. And that's, of course, a major plot point in the course of this film, which is wonderful because um, that theory is totally wrong uh, <laughs> and is completely incorrect and widely discredited. Uh, but uh, I just love that uh, <laughs> that all kind of makes its way even into uh, a Q title on the soundtrack release. <laughs> you know, a lot of the cues in this film are 
and maybe say you can talk to this. It's like um, they're almost like the one note that has just been processed over the course of four or five minutes that evolves and changes. And the next cue I want to play is one such example. Have you guys ever played like a long track on Spotify and you're like, you're trying to find a bit. So you just, you get that little timeline at the bottom and you just click mm. in little spots, you know, 30 <laughs> seconds in, yeah. a minute in. Where is that damn spot? <laughs> I sort of did this through this cue and, I, and all of a sudden, it was kind of like the same chord more or less, but I could hear the changes in the timbre and the resonances and what he'd done. The registers sort of starts higher than ends up in this low drone. And so I thought I've basically condensed a five-minute cue into one minute by just crossfading between a couple of portions throughout this, this five-minute long cue. And you really just hear the sense of how the texture is changing and try and extrapolate it and picture it being done over the course of five minutes. So this is the this is the cue I'll explain where Louise and Ian take off their hazmat suits, realize it's not, you know, electromagnetic or COVID-19 infested <laughs> um, and um, walk up to the glass and, and have a bit of an interaction with the heptapods. Now, it may seem like it, you know, is over quick, but that really, that does go on for five minutes and it just slowly morphs between all those different kind of textures. Um, and I mean, I guess say as a processing element, is is that just, like, can you automate modulations and things like that over a long period of time? Like, Absolutely. would it be possibly something like that? Yeah, I've actually heard uh, Johansson talk about how he would never ever use an, an effect in a static way. So he would always automate effects. So even if he used a plugin while he was processing audio after he'd done his tape looping or whatever in Pro Tools, he would always make sure that there's movement. So even if it's an organic sound, I don't think he frowned upon having having a digital after effect. And what I love, I think I kept coming back to the term subsonic rumble, which I think... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Similarly, I think in the last score that we talked about, I kept talking about bees. Um, in this one, <laughs> the subsonic rumble just kept coming into my mind. Um, and I think it's it's never really the same thing. I think he's, he's creating the subsonic rum, rumble in different ways by pitching different instruments down, by, you know, do, doing these amazing tape loops, doing sound upon sound, automating the effects. And I think he did a lot of these experiments over a long period of time. So that'd be you know, they'd be quite long pieces. So yeah, I, f I find that stuff fascinating too. I think it's really great, even though it sounds like it's, well, it's one note for five minutes, there's a lot going on. 
Yeah. It's like I've been watching um, a lot of uh, Penn and Teller, The Magicians. Oh, I love and that show. It's such a good show. And they're <laughs> never more impressed than when a magician does the same trick several times on stage and every single time is done differently. Like there's a different trick to how, you, how you're doing it. <laughs> and that just makes me think of this cue, right? Is that Johansson's the, ma- the magician and he's doing what sounds like a similar thing, but those subtle differences... That's where the real artistry comes into it. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, he's treating technology like a genuine instrument. And I know that you can, you know, you talk about that with keyboard synthesizers and, oh, it's an instrument, of course. But, I mean, he's, 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 he's treating tape players like instruments. He's treating um, effects, you know, uh, racks like instruments. The entire time it's like, well, how can I, you know, put more humanity into this? And as you say, it sort of means that you can have that five-minute loop or whatever you want to call it happen. And, um, but then all these little bits of, you know, things come into it. I think most importantly, he's made that choice to do it in a certain way. Like I said before, I think he's he's made a very conscious decision to do it in an organic way and record acoustic sounds. You know, this these things can be done quickly, but for him, I think he's always worked to a theme. Like even his earlier solo records, he made a bunch of thematic albums you know he he made one using IBM sounds because his dad was one of the first people to sequence computer sounds you know he worked for IBM so he's made an IBM themed album he's done one about Ford he's done one about all kinds of things so I think he has this really strong vision of meaning in his scores and the way that he creates them creates meaning and like I was saying at the very beginning you know a cue like this where really is just a chord or a note kind of morphing over five minutes, it gives you so much space to to think. And I was trying to listen to that then going, all right, what is this making me feel? Like I've studied so much film music in my life, yet I hear something like that and I can't immediately put my finger on what I'm supposed to be feeling. And I think that's the great beauty of a film like this and, and maybe a cue like that is that it's just... It's just sonic room for contemplation of what is happening on screen. And that's, you know, that's not a bad thing. Some people think, oh, film music always has to have an angle or say something. To be honest, that's often the criticism of film music is that it is too prescriptive. It is too much telling you what to feel. And so this sort of blank canvas is is Johansson's weapon um, in, in this particular film. But look, I think the next cue I want to play is arguably the most optimistic, shall we say, and this is during the sequence where Ian starts describing during this long montage sequence sort of how the heptapods kind of operate. And we get more vocals here, but they're they're kind of like, and I think I've heard Johansson say this, where it's almost like baby talk. Um, and I think this is where Hilda Gudnadotter, how's my pronunciation, Dan? Uh, I, I think that's better than a lot of people I've heard, but I... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Um, you really heard, he's not going to give it to her you. voice. Yeah. <laughs> um, doing these little phrases and it kind of sounds like, yeah, Google Gaga baby talk, which kind of makes sense because if this is a film where they're trying to decipher language, I mean, think about a baby talking. I mean, Andrew, you have kids. I'm sure people have come over and your daughter has said something and they're like, what the hell did she say? And you're like, yeah. oh yeah, it means this. Yeah. And I give you them know. a, you know, four page uh, commentary <laughs> on what she actually meant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, <laughs> let's have a listen to this, this wonderful cue. Mm-hmm. 
I really like this one. I, I, I want to go through some of the elements here because I, I think this is, once again, a really great example. You have the the voices, as, as you pointed out, Nick. Um, they're looping around, and it's, it's probably worth saying, I mean, it's maybe obvious if you've seen the film, but, you know, the, the um, heptopods' language is all in circles, all in loops, and so it makes perfect sense that this entire school is, is, is loops, um, that, that looping language is throughout this entire thing. So yes, you've got the you've got the singers and they're all being layered and, and it sort of feels like they're getting all these little pieces of language. But then you have a um, bomb, 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 quite a strong pulse. Interesting thing about that one is it is played manually. It's not perfect. So it's slightly ahead of the beat sometimes. It's slightly behind the beat. There is, uh, he could have very easily, once again, I've read an interview, he could have very easily have chosen to have a computer play that perfectly so it locks into a, a perfect beat but even that is organic even that sort of very bomb 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 sound is is being played by somebody and then you know manipulated and then of course you have those wooden um, blocks uh, that are all being played by actual percussionists same deal again you could have got a computer to do those perfectly but they've chosen to sort of use that very organic human players playing those with mallets and playing them up and down different lengths of these pieces of wood so you get different types of sound all throughout all of it and you combine this entire thing together you've also got that sort of much more positive harmony um, with uh, is it brass nick something like that um, yeah these low brass swells it's just a long e-flat major chord for the whole cube pretty yeah much. yeah yeah I mean, this is the this is the film's Rocky training montage, isn't it? This is the um, <laughs> we're we're working it out. I mean, even the sort of the the denseness of 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 everything feels like information is just pouring into you know the characters' minds, and they're slowly deciphering things. And there's a determination with that bump, 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 bump. You know, so they're they're forging ahead. So this might be my favorite cue. Might be. <laughs> yeah, no. I, look, I, I, I probably would agree. I think this is this is my favorite. It's so beautiful and so smart, <laughs> and it's classic minimalism, mm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Just the way it gently evolves, and you know, the interest doesn't come from the harmony. I mean, nowhere in this score does the interest come from the harmony. Mm. And in fact, I haven't even brought my piano today, guys. Yeah, <laughs> didn't need it um, because it's it's not worth. You know, deconstructing the harmonic analysis—that's um, not what this film does. But is there in that cue? I mean, you said it's a long single E chord. Did you? Um, e flat. E flat. E flat sorry. <laughs> but How dare you? To, to my <laughs> to my ears, it sounds like there's a couple of major chords that sneak in over the top of that, like maybe a tone or two above that just kind of hint in. And am I completely imagining that? Um, no. Look, there's some like you know. Notes like there's like a C and a D, yeah. which you know in E flat major, like the sixth and the major seventh, mm. which I guess you know change your perception of that chord slightly mm-hmm. um, and sort of dance around it to to create some interest. But fundamentally, the underlying harmony is still still an E flat. Nick, is that um, is that water? Is that a fifth? Yeah, yeah, that's going from like an E flat to a B flat. Water. Hmm. I think yeah. that's yeah, and that's Hilda. That's, that's Hilda beautiful. singing there, definitely. Yeah. Mm. In fact, I think that particular uh, little loop of of Hilda going water water na ba ba uh, 
I don't think was actually specifically recorded for this film. I think he had another little, you know, say you said that he he collects recordings, and I think he had this recording of of uh, Hilda, and I'm not going to pronounce her second name um, and embarrass myself. Gunnar Dottir. Yeah, yeah. He had that, and he sort of dropped it in, and then realised he could splice everything up and um, have it loop around in that interesting way. And then you have the theatre of voices coming over the top of that. We're adding their own layers. So um, yeah, it's. Uh, just the bag of tricks bag of tricks on this one it's great yeah i mean you said jokingly before that it's the rocky training montage but i think the the layering of those swells and the rhythm that underpins it and then the simple melody over the top i i mean it's everything that you want in a montage it's movement it's motion it's energy it's it's a sense of brightness and progression and things of importance happening that you also get in a film like Rocky, just in a completely different genre and a completely different set of musical <laughs> tools. But the but the musical effect is the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and you know it's just been done so cleverly that yeah, that's one of the things that I love about this this cue. And you can kind of imagine. I know it's a simple thing, but like if this scene and this music wasn't in the film. Like as an audience member, I might get a little frustrated that like there's no kind of it's just a whole film full of confusion about what they're interpreting. You know, you need some little wins along the board along yeah. the way to kind of <laughs> yeah. say, no, they they will maybe work it out. Yeah. Um, I think maybe that's classic storytelling and the structure and whatnot. But <laughs> I think so. I just remember the one other thing that I was going to say that I love about this cue and the use of voice throughout this film actually is the way that you can you can hear the. It's not just the production of the the sound, like the, the, the note, but it's also you can hear the mouth moving and the tongue hitting the na-na-na-na-na-na and the kind of light vocal fry from some of the singers. It's and very closely mic'd, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's picking up all of the stuff that you would normally not get. Right here. And, <laughs> and But I mean, like that kind of mouth noise, which is not particularly there, the kind of disgusting, sorry, everybody, the... You know, that you usually try and get rid of. And in fact, I throughout my entire life of having my voice recorded for radio and video essays and podcasts and the like have tried desperately to get rid of. I have some sympathy and kind of an impressedness about hearing such a beautiful recording that is about what is actually happening with somebody's face when they make a sound, which, I, yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, deliberate choices, those mm. as well. You know, mm. it's like I said, I, I think Johansson's one of his strengths is that he, it's simplistic on the surface of it. It's very mm. easy to d- dismiss what is going on. Uh, but there is so much intricate sort of choices that are made and, and they're very conscious choices. I, I think he is a very, you know, a smart composer and, and a very, you know, intellectual composer. And I, I'm, I don't know if intellectual is the right term, but I mean that he thinks about everything. And so just simply by having those microphones close means that he wants you to hear, you know, those little bits. It's very honest. Andrew, you know the, how we um, played earlier that cue when they arrive and, and basically see the, the mothership and we hear those sort of baby seal type sounds. You mean arrival? Um, yeah, the, the ones you so perfectly emulate. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the other scene we actually get these in is when Louise goes out to that little small transport that the big ship kind of sends out and she boards it and it takes her back up and she basically goes into the ship all by herself. And what I noticed was that when that little kind of transport vessel comes out, it's almost like we get little 
tiny baby seals. And so you get that wham, wham, and on the over the top, there's almost like little um, chipmunk versions of it. And then when she actually goes up into the ship, we get a really a low kind of whale moan again. So you're getting these three layers of kind of creatures, if you will, interpreted through the music. Check it out. Come little baby ones. I mean, Nick, you say there are no themes in this. I mean, I'm prepared to call this the heptapod theme. I'm going out on a limb. I'm apparently out on a limb. No one rushed to my <laughs> how, how my many aid. limbs are you out on, Andrew? <laughs> many limbs. Wait a minute. I agree. We- <laughs> I agree with you, Andrew. I think it yeah. sounds like the heptapod theme. Yeah, this mm. is the this is the heptapods. I mean, yes, they have all of their different aspects, um, like the little baby bits and the and well, the big it's the things. heptapod sound. Yeah, shall we say? No, oh, okay, okay. That's... I'm not gonna <laughs> buy the piano sheet music <laughs> of heptapod theme from, from your hand, your hands's arrival for easy piano. Well, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's the other the other the other way that I've been reading about recently of describing this kind of association. I don't know, Nick, if you covered this in your because you've actually studied film music. Um, <laughs> at an institution as How opposed to me who just reads about it um a, a, a topic is that a term that we could use to describe this where it's a set of instruments um and a set of sounds that 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 are associated rather than what was the term a topic a topic yeah have you not heard that uh, well, I've heard of like, you know, pick a topic. No. <laughs> you know, no, yeah, yeah. So this may, maybe this is a, I don't know, maybe this is a more recent music theory uh, thing. Look, not yeah. in a scholarly academic scholarly studious way being applied to film music. Uh, I mean, that no, said, Nick didn't get great marks at uni. So, Dan, I, I'm not convinced that... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is that It's is not true. It's not yeah. true. It's not true. <laughs> Something I noticed watching this film the other day is that when Louise kind of like discovers that the weapon that the heptapods are talking about is their language. There's a scene where she's walking through the, the you know the army tents and there's this alarm going off in the background. And it's on an F, like the, the note F. And then when the score creeps in, all of a sudden that alarm kind of gets kind of it disappears from the background. It actually almost appears in the score and almost like that arrival alien sound we're talking about. So I thought I'd play a bit of audio from this particular scene where you'll, you'll hear this alarm going off. And then as the, as the, um, uh, you know, I guess the discovery of hers becomes known to Ian, um, you'll hear it incorporated into the score. Check it out.
Look, we're done here. We're taking this with us. Isn't it great? That's cool. That's, yeah, that's really great. Well that's picked up on. Yeah. I mean, such a simple touch, but it's... Mm. Uh, and I'm not... I'm trying to think, what does that mean? <laughs> um, I'm not sure what it means. It's it's very clever um, and it really is quite, you know, it's it's very subtle. Mm-hmm. It's very subtle. I mean, I'd, um, I think it's another aspect of this, of this film and, and this score is that there are so many times where it is hard to sometimes tell the difference between the sound effects and the score. Now, in this one, I don't think you're ever supposed to, um, you know, think that the alarm is in the score and that those those sort of strange voices are, are the alarm. But there, it is an example of where the score and the sound effects um, are totally bouncing off each other the entire times. And often there are, are times where it feels like, you know, on the ship or there could be like engine rumble or whatever else, but actually it's the score and vice versa. And and so, yeah, it's just a total sort of melding of these two worlds. And I I think that, you know, same again, it's that, that respect that uh, Villeneuve has for Johansson and vice versa, where they're obviously working, you know, wonderfully in sync and everything is in harmony together. And I think that's what makes this film so powerful is that it just feels very whole Uh, absolutely i I think as well you know like the the kind of um i I don't know whether to spoil the film or not do we assume that people listening are uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that they they can deal with. I mean, maybe I'll try and talk still a little abstractly. That you know, at least by the end of the film, I think we come to understand that a lot of what we've seen is not necessarily in the order <laughs> that you might expect it to be, and that it is the whole film is kind of experienced as though it is a slightly misremembered dream, I guess. And so I think that these sorts of aspects to the music and the sound design kind of bleeding together just really reinforces that, that actually What's there's real not, and isn't real. It, and, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That the, the whole thing is almost kind of like a fragment of somebody's memory, even in the way that we're being told it. And that includes things like, like music and sound, yeah. Now, look, the pivotal scene really, Dan, you... Didn't want to spoil it. Maybe I'll try not to. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is is that that flash forward sequence where um, Louise meets General Shang at the uh, at the UN, the United Nations ball, and a lot of this plays with just a classical bit of background music. But when the score comes in, it's much more string based and much more kind of naturally organic. But again, it's one of these scenes where it's a very long cue that just kind of builds and and the string kind of repetitions are so moving and dramatic in the way that they cycle around that I've done a one, another one of these sort of condensing montage edits where you really hear how the strings develop and and sort of churn away and build to quite a big cutoff moment as uh, she whispers General Shang's wife's dying words. <laughs> Thank you. 
what's amazing is that cue is playing over two people talking very quietly and intimately to one another. And if you heard that out of context, I mean, it could be, it sounds quite electric and tense. And it's one of those great things in film music where you use a lot of motion and busyness in the music juxtaposed against a scene of very small amounts of dialogue. And it creates that heightened drama all by itself. I mean, I wonder, now I'm going to talk spoilers here. So if you if you truly haven't seen this film, there isn't a huge amount left of this podcast. Um, go and watch it now before you, you listen, <laughs> because I, I need to talk about this. Um, I mean, this this particular scene is, it is tense. It is a tense scene. I mean, if you, you remember Amy Adams' character is, uh, Louise is, is in the, let's call it the present, and she is needing the, the thing to say. So there's a time, you know, time is ticking on her end and she needs, you know, they've only got a few minutes or, or seconds or whatever it is for her to know what she needs to say to, to General Shang. And then there's the flash forward where she's learning what it is in sort of also real time and the clock is ticking down, we are running out of time. And, and in the, the moment of the talk, yes, it's very calm, but... I reckon this music is, is speaking to what the audience is feeling. Two, two things happen in this scene. There's the, the stress of the she's going to run out of time. And then there's also, this is the first time you realise that the time is all over the place. Mm. And so you get those... And that sort of really helps you feel like there's something like an uneasy feeling in your stomach. like it's sort of the inception moment. Yeah, it is. it's like, yeah, what is going on? You know, <laughs> what is going on here? And and this is the, the other amazing part about this film is that a lot of that sort of concept of messing with time is often told in a very linear way. So this, on the surface of it, looks like, oh, she just sees the future and then she can go back and, and so on. But in actual fact, the future and the present are happening at the same time because she then talks to General Shang and says to him, well, I said this thing to you. And he says, yes. And she says, well, can you tell me what I said? And he knows that she doesn't know yet what it is. Mm. Like he knows. He looks at her and is like, oh, of course you don't know. So let me tell it to you now, even though you've already told me. And then he says it to her, like, you'll just need to tell me this in the past. And it's, yeah, at that, that's such a different idea. And this is why I think this sci-fi is so great because it's, it actually deals with time in a very unique way. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's also hats off to Johansson um, for, I think, delivering a lot of the drama of that moment. Because if you think about it, it's, it's kind of a almost dramatically nonsensical moment because you're realizing that time is a, an entirely different construct. And yet the drama is that she's running out of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which it, it's <laughs> like, like back to the future. Yeah, it's very hard to hold those two thoughts in your head at the same time. And but it's the music that delivers that and makes you feel it. I think. Um, All right, trivia guys. Do you guys know what General Sheng's wife's dying words were? <laughs> How good's the Chinese? <laughs> I mean, it's in um, it's in Mandarin, isn't it? Yeah, but I I looked it up. Oh, once. really? Okay, I yep. Yeah. Okay, I don't know. Just excuse. So she says, "War doesn't make winners." Only widows. Whoa. Uh, that's nice. Go. It's nice. Nice. It's good. Tongue How do they know well. that? <laughs> is Wikipedia. that just one guy on the internet going? I think this is what she said. Well, I mean, I think they say the they say it's it. in the screenplay. Apparently. Oh, okay. Ah, okay. oh, right. I thought they say it, or do you not hear the whole thing? No, you don't hear um, anything. Oh, no, you don't know. I was going to say that's what, that's what makes it so great. It's okay. like the it's like the lost in translation. I was going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'll never know. Yeah, yeah. They did several takes with more intensity. 
Um, but look, I think a good way to sort of start to wrap this up is to play the very final cue in the film, which is when the heptapods, well, not the heptapods, the actual alien ships themselves all start leaving. And again, I want to play you the the mix from the film because on the soundtrack, it's actually quite a different cue. There's no strings on the soundtrack cue, whereas in the film, there is a bit more of a soul to the music with strings and some choir towards the end. But most interestingly, the cue ends on a nice, beautiful B-flat minor chord, which segues into the giant elephant in the room of this film, which is the other bit of music we haven't even talked about, which uh, is, of course, Max Richter's On the Nature of Daylight, a piece of music written for string quartet that was tracked into the film at both the opening and the closing and you know, arguably carry as much emotional weight, if perhaps not even more than than the score. So look, let's let's listen to this cue going into Max Richter's one, and then we can have a bit of a chat about it. What do we think? <laughs> it's, um, I mean, it, like you say, this is the sort of the, the elephant in the room that um, it's a relatively major part of the film score, mm. I guess, and it wasn't written by Johansson. Um, it's uh, by the, the minimalist composer Max Richter. Um, it starts the film, it ends the film, and both the start and the end have that sort of very large emotional payload, I guess, for want of a better term, and it's underscored by this particular piece. Um, and Dan, maybe you can talk to this. This is this is part of the reason, if not the reason, why uh, Johansson was not nominated for an Oscar on this score. Well, not only not nominated, the score was deemed ineligible um, for an Academy Award based on the fact that, well, the rationale, I can read you the exact wording, the rationale was that voters would be influenced by the use of pre-existing music when judging the merits of the score. In other words, using this piece at the start and the end uh, would colour people's perception of how good the music by Johansson is. Which, <laughs> I mean... What a fascinating response. I yeah. mean, you know, often you hear about, oh, the music... Um, you know, maybe like there wasn't enough of it. I, I know like um, Lisa Gerard was ineligible for an Oscar for Gladiator because apparently her contribution on a, like a per minute basis wasn't enough yeah. or something. Well, Gla- Gladiator sparked some rule changes about how many 
oh, um, did it? composers okay. could be listed uh, and and rules about how much music they had to contribute. But um, similar sort of um, strange uh, arbitrary rules. Yeah, well, it's it's really funny. It's really strange because the history of this entire category, the first, you know, for, I think five or six years of the Best Original Score Oscar, um, the Oscar was given to the head of the music department. So the guy, not not you know, because back then we didn't have uh, listed composers, you know, really for the first few years of of Hollywood synchronized sounds um, film composing, it, it was just it was taken for granted that head of Fox Music, or yeah, something. and that lots of composers would work on it. You would have a team because how could you possibly have one composer producing a masterwork, of, you know, for like an, an hour and twenty minutes of music or whatever um, over the relatively short amount of time. So, it wasn't really until um, I think it was uh, Korngold uh, and um, the Seahawk, I think was one of the really early ones that was kind of, you know, headlined as the composer, as the kind of author of this. And, you know, it's so funny because, that you know, it's not like in 1936 or whenever that was. Uh, suddenly everybody was like, yeah, let's only have film scores composed by one person or, you know, with film music that's a single genius behind it. Like the entire history of cinema is made up of film scores that have been group composed, co-composed, composed a little bit by one person, composed... ghost Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Saved by the orchestrator. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we could go through even uh, uh, history uh, recent to... Arrival with something like The Artist, which Ludovic Verse's score is, I think. Yeah, that's the other one that comes to my mind. Yeah, as well. I mean, I think it's a fantastic score and not to diminish from it at all, but it does use, as I'm sure many listeners would be aware, it uses um, an extract of, um, well, it uses the best bit of Bernard Herrmann's Vertigo <laughs> at a really key yeah. moment um, in the film. And yeah, that probably the the key moment, yeah. like the <laughs> most emotional moment that yeah. that you leave the cinema with in, in many and ways. And that one, the Oscar. And it's the same thing here. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, yeah. So that was not only nominated and eligible, but it won. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and you know, look, yeah. maybe the difference is is that I mean, well, it's not the explicit difference, but Max Richter is a living composer. Bernard Herrmann wasn't when the artist came out, um, and Max Richter is 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 very much writing music for uh, films um, ongoing at the moment. And it's also not the first film that has used on the nature of daylight, like in pretty heavy pivotal scenes. I mean, I remember seeing um, Shutter Island, Martin Scorsese's film. Um, that uses this in, again, some flashback sequences where he's sort of reminiscing about his love life with his wife, you know. Um, I mean, we can go through. It's it, On the Nature of Daylight has been used in the Will Ferrell film, Stranger Than Fiction. It's been used in Disconnect. No, it's been really? used in The Innocence, Jiro Dreams wow. of Sushi, a great documentary, by the way. It's just like it's it's one of those pieces that turns up everywhere. Yeah. I mean, let, let's, um outside of the... You know the the politics of it. I, I mean, let's talk about the piece of music itself. It's, I mean, it it's perfect. It, it have it is sort of perfect. It it actually works more. I mean, look, there's the emotional element, but even there's the the structure of it that works so perfectly for this film, almost as if it was composed for the film. It it uses you know minimalism, ultimately looping ideas. So there's that looping you know theme in there, and I would go as far to, and I'm going to draw a little bit of a long bow here that it is almost like 
an anagram in itself. I mean, one of the, the more sort of gorgeous realizations right at the end of the film is that Louise's daughter was called Hannah. Um, itself an anagram um, palindrome. Uh, palindrome palindrome so I've used anagram uh, palindrome um, same as the way forward and, and as the way backwards and um, this piece of music is sort of like that as well it starts in a way it develops up to the middle and then it unravels again on the way out and it is this um, you know this this palindrome of, of music uh, set to uh, Louise and her daughter at the end of the day and I don't know. It's just loops and time and ideas sort of moving in and out and things existing in sort of timeless moments, but then, you know, disappearing again. I It's a beautiful uh, selection. If you're going to use track music, this is this is probably one of the, the nicer selections they could have gone through. And really, I mean, this film, without this sort of emotional payoff, uh, is just a sort of random sci-fi film about language. <laughs> you know, the way it connects it back to this yeah. story of her... And, you know, having a daughter that will eventually pass away and then her husband, who she's just met, you know, will leave her because of her hiding that secret. I mean, that's such a huge emotional payoff for the film that I sort of feel even if Johansson wrote something original, it would probably feel like the most emotional part of his score if he wrote an original cue, um, just purely because it's linked to such such a big emotional payoff. Do you think that, to the untrained ear, Max Richter and Johan Johansson sound a bit similar as well. Because I was thinking, I mean, even to, I was really studying um, this score and I'm a big Max Richter fan and I was thinking there's definitely some similarities, even to the point where I thought maybe they'd used similar vocalists or, you know, maybe they used theatre of voices. Um, some of the some of the sounds that that's that come up on Max Richter's Sleep album sound quite similar to that sort of the timbre of voice uh, that comes up in this film. Um, definitely, I mean they're definitely from sim- similar schools of thought. Like I said, the broadest possible term being you know minimalist classical composers, for want of a better term. Um, I use the word classical loosely. Um, yeah, like contemporary classical. Contemporary yeah. classical, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, and, you know, I guess in, in some ways they're from similar parts of the world, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and there is the, you know, uh, Max Richter doesn't tend to use a lot of the the um, the electronics that um, Johansson does, um, but the aesthetic is there. And there are plenty of um, Johansson scores that are, you know, string based um, in the same way. So, I mean, here's a question: Do you think? I mean, you've talked about the fact that stylistically there are a lot of similarities between the Richter and the Johansson stuff with the loops and all that kind of stuff. Do you think the sole difference and the fact that it has such an emotional punch is purely because, you know, the opposite to what I said earlier? All of a sudden, we have a really strong sense of harmony in the music and a harmonic language chord progressions. Um, which we haven't really had in the film. It definitely allows your emotions to sort of run wild, doesn't it? Like, whereas before that, it's it's sort of letting you... You're doing the heavy lifting, you know. It's giving you the palette and the mood um, and, the, and the vibe and, and, you know, setting up, you know, a feeling of sorts. But it's... Whereas this one is telling you, no, this is quite sad and, yeah. and you know... Um, you can just sit with your feelings and we'll do the heavenly yeah, yeah, thing for yeah. you now. <laughs> do you think that he actually wrote something for this and they rejected it? Oh, I'd love to know. <laughs> because I think he's really... He's so capable of making this kind of beautiful music. You know, it's like even... 
in some of the pieces from Last and First Men um, are, are so beautifully harmonic and, and so touching and emotional. I just, I think he could have done this. Do you think Denis Villeneuve had chosen this piece before he... I think that's Johansson. more likely than he replaced something that was yeah. written by Johansson. I, I reckon... Do you think he had to have that conversation? <laughs> Johan, come, come in, sit down, yeah. look... We're going to use this Max piece at the beginning and opening. Yeah. And Johansson's just like, you bastard. <laughs> Fired from Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah. What, what, uh, <laughs> whatever conversation they had was surely better than the one that didn't occur between Kubrick and Alex North for 2001. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to explain what you mean there, Dan, to all the listeners in case they don't know? I, I don't know. Haven't we mentioned this before? Maybe not. That, um, that uh, Alex North turned up at the premiere of 2001 having written an amazing original score for the film. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, it begins with uh, Richard Strauss and uh, not Alex North. Uh, and that was when he found out in the audience. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Been cut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, um, you know, there's probably a lot to talk about with this, with this opening and final cue. I, I mean, but to talk about the movie as a whole, I think um, outside of, like I said, these, these individual things, it's, you know, I, I really, I, I think because it is different because of the harmony, you know, it allows it allows the tears to come. I, I was certainly a little bit weepy at, at moments. Maybe at the top of the show, actually, the top of the movie. Mm. Um, it's got an. You, you said up before. It's got an up. Yeah. An up opening. Yeah. Where in the first oh. two minutes, I'm like, oh, yeah. I feel emotionally <laughs> manipulated immediately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it, yeah. it is a tremendous end. I like this is one of the films, especially the end and the kind of decision that she makes. I think it's it's one of the things that I one of the life lessons, if I can say that, yeah. from a movie yeah, that yeah, I yeah. that I constantly reflect on. That even if this, even if you know this terrible thing is going to happen, you're still going to do it anyway because the the moment of of having that kid and and you know having having that moment of goodness outweighs the fact that it will be taken away from you in a relatively short amount of period in in shocking circumstances i think that's i i, I think it's profound <laughs> yeah totally yeah. i mean that that idea that you can see your entire life laid out before you and you decide unlike a lot of time, time travel films yeah you decide that no good and bad i'm not changing anything because the good far outweighs the bad, mm. I think is a, a, yeah, like you say, a stunning idea for, for a sci-fi film to make, especially one that deals with time. Mm. And here's a thought. So her, her husband, her partner, mm. um, he obviously never learns the language, does he? Because he doesn't see it coming. <laughs> yeah. If well, he had learned the language, he would have been able to see what was going to happen. Well, he's, um, isn't he a physicist or something? Yeah, he's, he's a physicist. not a linguist, yeah, so you know he's lower on the chain of uh, you know, <laughs> PhDs. Really, write <laughs> <laughs> into contact at underscore yeah. <laughs> if you are a yeah. <laughs> physics major. Oh well, look, uh, I have a PhD <laughs> in cinema studies, so I think that that definitely goes at the bottom of most chains. <laughs> so, sorry to my cinema studies compatriots. <laughs> uh, it does bring us to the end of our analysis of Arrival. We hope you enjoyed yourself. And if you do, press subscribe and write us a sweet five-star review on iTunes. That sort of stuff always gets the word out there because we don't pay any money for marketing. Very cheap. 
That said, Saya, Saya has been on the uh, podcast so many times now that she gets use of the company Amex. Uh, so Saya, it's a five dollar limit, and uh, spend it on I was whatever. I say you want. I did just buy a Porsche today. Is that cool? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, we're ruined. Uh, <laughs> of course, if you have any questions about the uh, scores that we talk about, uh, then please uh, get in contact with us on Twitter, on Instagram at Art of the Score, and of course Facebook, the same name. Uh, email contact at artofthescore.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. So until next time, I'm Andrew Pogson, and that's Dan Golding. It's been a pleasure as always. She is Saya Vogel. Thank you so much for having me. And he's Nicholas Buck. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and this was Art of the Score.